Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the whole counsel of God's Word. But before we jump into that topic, I'd love to remind you of PeaceWorks University. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And if you are benefiting from the things you're hearing on the PeaceWorks podcast, well, you know what's coming. PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can learn more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, so on today's episode, we're going to be looking at one of your questions and Um, The question is uh, submitted as such, so here's how it's worded. Why is it that pastors tend to see marriage only through obvious love and marriage passages and yet seem to ignore the rest of the Bible? What non-marriage passages have you found to be significant in domestic abuse discussions? So interesting question. Um, I guess I would start with, I, I don't know why. Why questions are hard for me. I don't know why pastors or maybe the pastors that you have encountered or that you have attempted to work with um, operate this way. We can speculate, um, you know, and we've talked about that in recent episodes, things such as fear and comfort and familiarity. And, and I think that's probably familiarity is it's probably a, a big a reason or as significant a reason as any. Uh, when you think about it, we, we counsel, all of us, and all of us do counsel, all of us do speak into people's lives, and we tend to counsel or speak from a place in which we're informed or experienced. And so we tend to speak out of the familiar. And certainly those passages, marriage passages, the love passage out of 1 Corinthians 13, maybe, if that's what you're referring to. Those are very familiar passages to pastors, um, especially, you know, those of us, if you think about how stretched pastors are in a lot of ways, and for those of us who maybe are bivocational or, you know, we're pastoring small congregations or older congregations, uh, maybe we are doing several weddings a year for people's grandchildren uh, and those marriage passages are fresh, you know, and recycled. Maybe we're doing a lot of funerals. And so, you know, John 14 is a, a passage that gets recycled a lot. I don't know. I, I don't honestly know the motivations for everyone, but my guess would be familiarity. Uh, and they are quite familiar. Now, on the second part of that, before we get into, hey, what what scripture could we look at? I don't think those passages are inappropriate for understanding uh, domestic abuse. In fact, I I think 1 Corinthians 13 has been used for years by very skilled advocates um, to highlight some of the distinctions between biblical love and the experience of abuse. In in fact, a very common uh, device or um, skill or technique that I've seen advocates use is to take that passage, love is patience, love is kind, um, and substitute the word love for Jesus to really gauge an individual's experience with with 
with Jesus, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, and and be like, yes, that's that's true. And then to put maybe their partner's name in there, uh, you know, start with love, then with Jesus, then with your partner, and finding that there is a big distinction between biblical love and abuse. Certainly if someone is being coerced and controlled and intimidated and manipulated, um, those virtues are not present in that relationship. And so passages like 1 Corinthians 13 can um, be used as homework and in education and helping people understand just a biblical theology of love. And we'll get to that in a minute because I think theological concepts and theological principles are very helpful here when some folks are looking for chapter verse. And then the marriage passages, I mean, I, I wouldn't avoid them either. I know there are some that are more difficult to navigate. I think First um, Peter 3 is somewhat difficult to navigate in these situations because um, certainly abuse is not a marriage problem. It occurs in the context of marriage. Uh, and we tend to see the gentleness and quietness passage. We gen- we tend to see the um, Sarah and Abraham correlation. We, te- we tend to see chapter 2 as being really significant to chapter 3, which is true. Uh, we sometimes fail to apply chapter 5. Um, sometimes we fail to see the significance of verse 7 in chapter 3, husbands living with your wives in an understanding way. So, uh, you know, even passages like first. Peter 3, when when handled well, when taken slowly, when put in the entire context of the book, uh, can be helpful. Certainly, uh, Colossians 3 has actually a little bit more stern warnings than perhaps we want to, to heed, such as husbands love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Uh, certainly, harshness being the, the sin in Colossians 3 and being inconsiderate as the sin in First Peter 3 actually elevates abuse. It actually puts abuse in a proper context to be like, well, if those are significant, if being inconsiderate and harsh are that significant to warrant warnings, then uh, certainly abuse is more significant than that. And then certainly Ephesians 5, the other you know marriage passage or headship and submission passage, has a lot of great context about husbands loving their wives uh, as they love their own bodies, about um, Christ loving the church and giving himself for her, the, the sacrificial nature of love, the call to be mutually submission submissive in verse 21, then how that specifically plays out in a variety of relationships, such as marriage, parenting, um, slaves and masters, not to mention the whole context of chapter 5, to be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, or the whole context of the book of Ephesians, which um, has a lot of rich um, indicatives about the believer, which speaks significantly to how we treat one another. So, yeah, all that to say, I hear what the questioner is saying. I just wanted to clarify that those passages that pastors seem to love in this in this. In this question, uh, can still speak significantly to domestic abuse, and in a very healthy um, biblical way that would confront abuse and promote safety. Now, I, I understand that the questioner is probably coming from a position, as many of us have, where these passages have been weaponized or perhaps simplified so that it is used maybe just as an indictment for a victim to submit 
or somehow conflating abuse and headship um, rather than seeing headship as having a, a tremendous amount of boundaries and responsibilities, seeing it as kind of a, a license to control or to dominate rather than seeing servant leadership as the primary principle in those passages. So your theology is going to play a huge role in that. And so let's, let's head to the second part of the question, which was, you know, there's a, there's a whole rest of the Bible, which is true. What non-marriage passages have you found to be significant? So uh, let me do this two ways. I think there are passages that could be helpful, but um, I also think that systematic theology could help us here. And this is the idea that biblical theology will, will take this concept of a passage, boiling it down to the intent of the author for that passage, systematic theology, and I know this is very generic in general saying it this way, but we don't have a lot of time. Systematic theology is kind of the whole threads of truth that run through Scripture that are consistent from, from front to back or in multiple passages of Scripture. And so taking a systematic approach I think would be helpful here because rather than looking at passages, I think it would be helpful <clears throat> excuse me, to look at theological concepts, uh, such as, let's just start with the two that you mentioned, the love and marriage passages. Let's go beyond the passages and just think for a minute about a theology of love and a theology of marriage. What we know of God's intention for marriage and what we know about the godly virtue of love is inconsistent, biblically speaking, with uh, abuse. And you can just start thinking through um, love, for instance. We already mentioned 1 Corinthians 13 and how that expression of love is inconsistent with abuse. You can think through 1 John um, chapter 4. Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And so there is a contradiction in, in that regard. Um, they'll know you're my disciples by your love. Uh, love being equated throughout Scripture with the idea of giving and service. God loved the world so much that he gave his son um, that we understand biblical concepts of love to be central to these themes of service and sacrifice um, and humility as opposed to coercion and control. So even the theological concept of love, biblically informed, uh, runs in stark contrast to abuse. The same is true with marriage, right? As God designed marriage from the beginning and, and the thread of marriage all the way through, we see what marriage is designed for as opposed to abuse. And so when we read marriage passages, we see this stark contrast between servant leadership and biblical submission to abuse and coercion and threat and fear. At least we should. Other concepts could be the uh, peace, uh, this thread of peace that runs through Scripture and God's um, thoughts and heart regarding violence towards uh, other people. Uh, we can see this thread through concepts of uh, God's sovereignty being opposed by abuse as the abuser puts themselves in a position of power and control. We could even use power, a theology of power or a theology of authority and see that thread run through Scripture that runs contradictory to abuse. And so in that regard, you know, most any passage 
that is teaching us concepts of practical theology will have embedded within it concepts of things like respect, coercion, threat, fear, things that are indicative or or intrinsic to the abuse discussion. So, um, for instance, biblical narratives. So there, I wouldn't teach entire theological concepts with biblical narratives, but certainly biblical narratives can show practically like real life case scenarios of ways in which these principles are either followed or abandoned. And abuse can be a big part of that. So King David, King Saul, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, other folks who are in leadership positions, the religious leaders of Jesus's day, the, the, the Pax Romana of Jesus's day, kind of this peace by threat of violence can all teach to some degree or show to some degree those theological threads and how they're either conformed to, you know, obeyed or abandoned and how Jesus ultimately throughout the gospel fulfills the law by being the, the example of this spirit filled peace, engaging love centric person who, you know, lives in, you know, perfect obedience to these concepts that we're talking about. And so when Jesus teaches us aspects of authority, for instance, in Mark 10 and Matthew 20, he talks about the importance of service, you know, being first by being last, by being great, by being a servant, you know, and those are concepts that Jesus teaches, and then they're reiterated throughout the New Testament. He models that in places like John 13 by washing the disciples' feet. Paul, you know, sings about that or writes about that in Philippians 2, talking to us about Jesus' willingness to let go of the benefits of the divine in order to be emptied um, and to be humble and to serve humanity through, once again, sacrifice. And so, yeah, I don't know if I could point, I, I just did point to some passages that I think speak, speak to, excuse me, abuse in all its forms. But I think that's part of our big rub in the, in the work right now is, well, where is the chapter and verse on uh, domestic abuse? I'm like, well, there's, I mean, the whole Bible speaks to domestic abuse. And when we get into this idea of we have to proof text everything, I, I think a lot of our practical theology falls apart. <clears throat> I mean, where do we come up with our views on sexuality, for instance? Yes, there are imperatives written clearly in Scripture about sexual behavior, but there also are concepts that are drawn throughout Scripture, right, that that inform our decisions regarding sexuality. Well, that's not specifically mentioned in the scripture. Well, it, it, it is not verbatim as we want it to be said or as you're wanting to be said, but look at the way in which God designed this. Look at how God spoke to this. It's, it's naturally, it's obviously speaking to, to all of these areas, you know, um, my my one of my kids showed me a meme recently that was a bit heretical but they found it funny and it was um the bible never says that jesus wasn't a duck 
And they thought that was a funny statement. And I was like, well, that, that is true. The Bible says, never says that Jesus wasn't a duck, which is an absurd thought. But the Bible clearly does refer to him as a man. So just because the Bible doesn't lay out word for word you know, what you're looking for doesn't mean that it has not given us the answers regarding that, right? Because obviously Jesus was a man. He was, he was born in Bethlehem. He was a baby. He, he grew in wisdom and stature, according to Luke. He um, made his appearance at the Jordan River to, to John the Baptist and was baptized, and he went into the wilderness where he was hungry because he's a man. He was called the Son of Man, right? So there are, he, he died, right? He was killed by the Romans uh, on the cross. He was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. So uh, he carries the wounds with him um, post-resurrection to, to, to prove his identity. He, he was a man. And then, no, I'm sorry that, that if that isn't good enough for somebody because the Bible doesn't clearly tell us what Jesus wasn't, um, but the reality is that's so true in many of the things that we study or else the Bible would have to be completely exhaustive. And there's no way that uh, human beings could even, even comprehend or own a book that was completely exhaustive. Right. I mean, if the internet has shown us anything is that we can't know everything. So um, I, I do want to be careful here to say, no, I don't know that I, can point to a specific passage that completely highlights domestic abuse. We could use Exodus, what is it, 21, and talk about neglect. We could certainly use Jewish case law um, kind of rules to extrapolate from that because that's the way it was interpreted back then. But maybe more important than finding chapter and verse is that we look at the concepts of how God um, has designed us, how he's designed marriage, what he intended for love and respect, uh, what he thinks about coercion, threat, fear, and intimidation, uh, maybe what he says regarding manipulation and using um, demeaning language towards other people. And perhaps that should be enough to inform our, our understanding of abuse. And so I love the question. I think the question is really interesting. Why is it that pastors tend to see marriage only through obvious love of marriage passages? I think familiarity is part of that. I do think there's a chapter and verse mentality that we're a little scared to speak into something that we don't have chapter and verse for. But rather than proof texting, uh, what if we relied on good theology, good hermeneutics, and and came away with what the questioner is suggesting? What if there's some non-marriage passages that inform this? What if we could look to biblical narratives and say, wow, that looks like a horrible way to lead, and then look to the um, imperatives of Matthew 20 and Matthew 10 to say, oh, or Mark 10 to say, oh, for Christians, we're not supposed to lead that way. That's why that's a bad example of leadership. It makes perfect sense because Jesus called us to power under, called us to serve. And, and I think there are just countless examples of um, theological truths and concepts that, that flow into the abuse work and abuse world. I know working with perpetrators, um, I have had many who ascribe certain doctrinal positions, but don't live them practically. Um, I've had many discussions about the sovereignty of God, for instance, um, and just a real ardent position on God's sovereignty, but then practically just not living it out. 
you know, by, by, you know, intimidating and coercing and being in control. So there's just so many great concepts out there. If you want to learn more about this, I actually think there's some, uh, probably the best book out there on this conversation is When Home Hurts by Greg Wilson and Jeremy Pierre. And they do an excellent job kind of walking through these concepts of how our theology informs our understanding of abuse and that we don't need, you know, bullet-pointed chapter and verse per se, but that the Bible speaks clearly and effectively to the evil of an abuse of power and how the gospel speaks to that. So I would highly recommend that discussion in When Home Hurts. Well, friends, it's been uh, great visiting with you again. I hope uh, this was a helpful podcast. If you have been benefiting, remember, please check out PeaceWorks University. I think it would be a great next step for you. If uh, you would be willing to help us and rate, review, subscribe, follow, you know, do whatever the platform you're listening on asks you to do to let them know that you value the podcast. Thank you guys again for listening to the PeaceWorks podcast. Until next time, God bless.